welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy public lecture on uh, the incompatibility of science and religion. I'm Simon Glendinning and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy. I'm delighted to see so many of you here. Thank you for coming. Um, we had Simon Blackburn talking on a similar theme last year and he said 10 years ago if he was talking on that topic, which he would have been, <laughs> um, uh, there would have been about five or six people in the room, and on that night it was similarly uh, full, and it, um, obviously something to do with the times. Um, some mark of that fact, of it being something to do with the times, uh, struck me earlier today when I, I was reading Barack Obama's book. The Audacity of Hope, and since it was his day yesterday, I thought we'd start off with something from him, because he picks up on something related. He's talking about America, but uh, and although America is often thought of as distinctive, it's not massively so. He says it's, uh, we Americans are a religious people. According to the most recent surveys, 95% of Americans believe in God. More than two-thirds belong to a church. 37% call themselves committed Christians, and substantially more people believe in angels than believe in evolution. Nor is religion confined to places of worship. Books proclaiming the end of days sell millions of copies. Christian music fills the billboard charts, and new megachurches seem to spring up daily on the outskirts of every major metropolis, providing everything from daycare to singles mixers to yoga and Pilates classes. Our president, that's the other one, uh, <laughs> routinely remarks on how Christ changed his heart, and football players point to the heavens after every touchdown as if God were calling plays from the celestial sidelines. Still, if 50 years ago you had asked the most prominent cultural commentators of the time just what the future of religion in America might be, they undoubtedly would have told you it was on the decline. The old-time religion was withering away, it was argued, a victim of science, higher levels of education in the general population and the marvels of technology. Respectable folks might still attend church every Sunday, Bible thumpers and faith healers might still work the southern revival circuit, the fear of godless communism might help feed McCarthyism and the Red Scare, but for the most part, traditional religious practice was considered incompatible with modernity. And he goes on looking at think what happened? Why is it, as it were, that this withering away didn't take place? Well, that's not so much our question today, but in a way the question is related, which is the assumption made by very many academics that religion would be on the decline was part of a conception of the movement of world history away from myth and superstition, and some would say religion, towards an age of reason, science, the age of enlightenment, and so on. Some people have thought that, uh, that the dawning of that enlightenment age would be compatible with religion, others that it might be incompatible with it. And today I'm absolutely delighted to invite John Morrill, who is best known for his writings in the philosophy of science, and these are very technical works which are certainly 
normally, I wouldn't say always, normally wouldn't bring out quite so many people, perhaps. Uh, but, the, but the word got round that John had been thinking and writing on this question, this very pertinent, pre present question for us today about science and religion, and I couldn't resist asking him if he would make it public, and I'm absolutely delighted that he's agreed to do so. It's, it's a very uh, controversial topic, lots of heat, let's hope for lots of light, and i now hand over then to uh, John Morrill. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. Shan't be as fluent as the Saint, Saint Barak, but uh, I'll do my best. Uh, okay, so um, the, the theme, as, uh, as Simon indicated, is going to be the general issue, the philosophical issue, if you like, of whether there's a general incompatibility between science and religion. But whatever the truth about that, and I'll try and convince you that the truth is that they're incompatible, obviously, from the title. Uh, just speaking purely factually, there have, of course, been, as everybody knows, uh, particular conflicts, as a matter of historical fact, between, uh, between religion and specifically in this case Christianity, we'll get more general later on, I won't be entirely parochial, but between Christianity on the one hand and religion on the other. This is the, this is the wonderful Galileo Galilei, who as every schoolboy knows was uh, put under house arrest by the Inquisition and as people usually put it, forced to recant his belief in Copernicanism, of course he didn't recant his belief in Copernicanism, he pretended that he didn't believe in Copernicanism. Copernicanism as is indicated by his phone's remark when he got out of, uh, out of uh, house confinement, rather forgetting that he'd been standing on the earth inside the house as well, but let's not spoil the good line, he said, and still it moves when he got out. Um, <laughs> so far as I can tell, it, it, uh, this was a lot of heat based on just two texts. I've certainly never found any other texts in the Bible uh, that are supposed to have uh, indicated that Copernican theory must be wrong. Uh, one is Joshua 10.13, of course you remember Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and fit it in a way that would certainly have got him in front of war crimes tribunal these days. Uh, it was pretty nasty stuff, but you remember his masterstroke was to tell the sun to stand still, which somehow or other in an unexplained way caused, caused the walls of Jericho to fall, which made his battle uh, altogether easier to fight. And the only other one I've seen quoted, this actually by Calvin, uh, Psalm 104 said that he has founded the earth upon its foundations so that, so that it shall not be moved forever. Well, uh, it'll probably become clear as I go along, maybe not in the lecture itself, but if we have some discussion afterwards that, that Roman Catholicism is not my favourite institution in the world, so perhaps I should say a little bit in their defence, because obviously they're the ones who get it in the neck in connection with the Copernican revolution and the resistance there too, and of course as far as Galileo is concerned, they were entirely responsible in that you know, the Catholics were in charge in Italy and they had the Inquisition to enforce their beliefs, but uh, if you read Cardinal Bellarmine, uh, Galileo's erstwhile friend and then enemy, he's altogether more sophisticated than the Protestants were, they somehow get off lightly here. Uh, I mean unsophisticated from a rationalist point of view. Here's Luther saying, people give ear to an upstart astrologer who strove to show that the earth revolves not the heavens or the firmament, the sun and the moon. This fool wishes to reverse the entire, scripture, entire science of astronomy, but sacred scripture tells us, Joshua 10.13, that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. So, end of story, obviously. Uh, and Calvin uh, denounced those who, quote, pervert the course of nature by saying that the sun does not move and that it's the earth that revolves and that, and that it turns. 
It turns out that a more famous quote from Calvin, actually used, for, for example, by Bertrand Russell in his famous tract, Why I'm Not a Christian, namely, who will venture to place the authority of Copernicus above that of the Holy Spirit, uh, was not Calvin's own, but some later Calvinist, but never mind. So there was that, that, certainly that run-in between, particular run-in between a particular set of religiously motivated beliefs on the one hand and science on the other, and of course we still have, uh, already referred to, the continuing religiously motivated attack on attacks on Darwin's theory of natural selection. We tend to think of this as an American phenomenon, sadly not so. Um, the appalling Tony Blair, one of the most, anyway, let me not go on about Tony Blair, it gets me annoyed, uh, allowed academy schools to be set up by people who insisted on having uh, creationism taught us on, an, on a par with Darwinism. People in the Northeast should not be subject to this crime, in my view, but Anyway, uh, it's not a purely American phenomenon, but thankfully most, mostly an American phenomenon. And of course it's religiously motivated, partly, partly also motivated by the idea expressed in this famous cartoon that it's not very pleasant to think that we have kinships to the, to, to a kinship to the apes, uh, but largely by uh, religious motivations. Uh, in particular, people believe, uh, creationists believe, that the world, the earth is very young. They work out on the basis of Genesis, of course, that uh, you know, on the number of generations that there have been since God created the uh, earth in six days uh, how old the earth is like, likely to be and they come up with a date roughly 4004 BC uh, when the earth was created with what they call the present kinds rather than species pretty well largely uh, intact and this is obviously a religiously motivated view which clashes very radically with uh, Darwinian theory which requires millions and millions of years in order for evolution to have occurred, and certainly a lot more than 6,000. Uh, I just like quotes, because this was my favorite hymn, because of course I stand before you with the zeal of a convert. I used to teach Sunday school, but it's an interesting question whether I actually converted, because it, so, it was so early when I, I don't know. Anyway, let's not talk about me. I used to like singing this hymn, although other people didn't like hearing me sing the hymn, because I got a terrible voice. All things bright and beautiful, but it's modified. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful. The Lord chance made them all. Do, and uh, William Watson, I think his name is, in a wonderfully titled book called The Great Brain Robbery. Obviously, he's a creationist. Person. Do we want this taught to our children? It's a terribly scientifically literate book or anything else. But anyway, I could give you a lecture. That would be an alternative on why the creationist argument and its recent entirely fraudulently repackaged uh, version, that's all it is. People, of course, for political reasons, want you to think that the intelligent design theory is, uh, is separate, but it's essentially the same theory uh, with a few what philosophers call existential quantifiers rather than God himself named, but essentially the same theory. Uh, I could give you an, uh, a talk on why that, that involves pretty well every possible kind of scientific illiteracy, but my guess is that that wouldn't do any good in front of such a <coughs> A sophisticated audience because although there's certainly an incompatibility here and there's no doubt in my mind that science wins the natural reaction and certainly one's one that's articulated by uh, a range of more people certainly self-styled more sophisticated thinkers about the relationship between science and religion uh, they wouldn't put it this way because they're mostly Anglicans and Anglicans like to be nice and woolly cardigan and not too confrontational uh, the, but the, essentially, this, the, the, this is just the talk of a bunch of no doubt sincere but crazy fundamentalists with their, as, as Polkinghorne, who's going to 
play a big role in this talk, uh, calls them rather flat-footed, uh, literal interpretation of Genesis 1. Uh, more sophisticated believers see no clash between, or no reason to see any clash between science and religion of, of, that, particular, uh, of that particular kind. Uh, Christianity, of course, now happily accepted heliocentrism, although it did take until 1820 for the Catholics to take Copernicus's De Revolutionibus off the uh, index of, uh, of books that Catholics were prohibited to read, but nonetheless they reconciled themselves to that, and we should surely, it should surely do now the same with Darwin, uh, at least if we don't think in this unsophisticated fundamentalist way. So here's a quote, it is from Polkinghorne, uh, Genesis 1 is not a literal account of a hectic six days of divine activity given to save us the trouble of using science to discover the remarkable history of the universe. Instead it's a piece of theological writing that uses a symbolic story to convey the theological truth that nothing exists except through the creative will of God, and God said, let there be. And he carries on, when Darwin published The Origin of Species, it's actually on The Origin of Species, quite natural selection, blah, blah, blah. anyway, when he published it in 1859, uh, many people, both religious and non-religious alike, opposed him uh, because they thought that acknowledging human kinship with, should be the other animals, would be fatal to human dignity, but also, of course, because they thought it clashed with, with, uh, with the Bible, but he's already said that that was a mistaken interpretation too. This was a wrong response as a matter of historical fact, the mistaken character of this thinking was realised by many religious people at the time as well as non-religious ones, which is perfectly true. So the sophisticated view is that there is no conflict, no need for conflict of this kind that's been manifested historically. Science and religion are just two admittedly different but non-conflicting ways of seeking the truth. And following this man, the one at the front, is Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, a famous paleontologist and evolutionist who sadly died at an early age a few years ago. Uh, this view of compatibility is often ra rather pompously, I fear, called the non-overlapping non magisteria or noma thesis. Uh, and it's discussed, albeit uh, a, a bit superficially, under that heading by Richard Dawkins in his celebrated, famous or notorious book, The God Delusion, whichever way you want to read it. Here's Richard. Uh, with uh, Pauli Toynbee and well, my, whose name I've forgotten now who started this atheist campaign Eileen something I think she's a comedian and writer has anybody seen one of these uh, buses yet I keep, uh, they're supposed to be up and about and uh, if you mm, a very pl plonking slogan they came up with I think but anyway uh, they're already discussing what the second one will be if you go onto the uh, uh, Richard Dawkins Foundation website you'll see there's already I'm afraid equally plonking discussions to what the next, uh, what, they've got m money to do another campaign after this one if it ever indeed starts because they've been sued, they've been taken to the Advertising Standards Authority. Right? Oh good, well thank God, well sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, thank goodness for that. That was a real cheat, that, I mean some of the things that have been on the buses that, that create, that motivated this thing. Anyway, I think NOMA, the non-overlapping magisteria name is misleading for reasons that will become transparent. I, I, I'll call the view compatibilism. Uh, and this is a typical compatibilist quote. Science and theology are both concerned with the search for truth. They are friends, not foes. Uh, the appearance of warfare is a mistake based on unfortunate episodes from the past, principally, of course, the two that I've, uh, that I've talked about. And the, the view is, the compatibilist view is, that you can deny specific claims like 
the claim seems to be based on what people say, call the literal interpretation of the, of, of the Bible, that all currently living humans are descendants of two humans, Adam and Eve, who themselves had no ancestors. You can deny that while remaining recognizably religious, and then once you do start to, as it were, pick and choose, although people are very bad at giving you the principles on which they pick and choose which are true and which are metaphorical in the Bible, but again, let that go, let that go, you can finish up with a position that's recognizably religious on the one hand, but has no conflict with science. Uh, on the other. So as I said, I already quoted it, science and theology are both concerned with the search for truth, they are friends, not foes. And that and the earlier compatibilist quotes are all from this man, John Polkinghorne, uh, who's the living embodiment of compatibilism in that he was a professor of particle physics at the University of Cambridge uh, and did uh, distinguished work. He did a PhD with Abdus Salam on the team that was headed by Paul Dirac, who's certainly in the top four or five physicists of the 20th century, and that was quite a century. And then he gave up his chair at Cambridge and uh, uh, trained as an Anglican priest, and now writes books, I'm sure many of you know, on why it is that uh, you can be both religious and, uh, and scientific, as he very patently is. Uh, and we'll be quoting him quite a lot as I go along. So let's, for the sake of argument, assume it's possible uh, to avoid, I'm going to do for the rest of the talk, I'm going to assume for the sake of argument that it's possible to avoid any direct clash between science and religion of the Copernicus or Darwin type while remaining recognizably religious. It's actually not so easy, that just let me say in brackets because I can't resist it. Um, as people say, I mean, they, this is the standard line, uh, people think of themselves as more compact, but then having said that, you know, they don't believe that God, that God created the universe in six days. Uh, they then go and say some funny things that at least that are doubtfully uh, compatible with religion. So the Catholic Church, having rather grudgingly, I think, accepted that, that Darwinian theory is, as they put it, more than a mere hypothesis, nonetheless want to insist that there's, a, there's somewhere along the evolutionary tree at which souls are infused into, into organisms, which doesn't look like it's compatible with science. And, and they still continue to assert the literal truth of transubstantiation, which has always got me. Uh, that, that you know, the, the, uh, uh, during the Eucharist, the, uh, the blood and uh, the, the, blood, the, uh, the wine and the, and the bread turn into the blood and body of Christ, though all their, quote, empirical characteristics remain the same. Well, if that's not counter to science, I don't know what is. Uh, and silly Polkinghorne, having uh, said that science and theology are friends, continues to assert, for example, the literal resurrection of Christ, which, you know, not that he seemed to be dead, and then wasn't, but that he was really dead for several days, and that then he then uh, came back to life and as an essential part of, the, of Christian belief. Well, that sounds to me awfully anti-scientific as well. But anyway, as I say, I'm going to be awfully generous and agree that you can be, you can uh, become that you can adopt a view that uh, is recognisably religious, but not avoids any direct clash with uh, with. Uh, with science and I'm, so I'm going to investigate this general claim that they're entirely uh, compatible and I'll try to analyse a bit more carefully than some other people have what more precise notions of compatibility are available for this thesis to go through so I'm going to do some analytic philosophy and to see whether there is any sustainable and interesting sense in which science and religion are indeed uh, compatible but let me, I just want to highlight, just sort of go back on that a little bit, in that I just want to, before leaving the, the specific clashes, just talk a little bit about one aspect of the specific creationism issue, because it's going to 
give us some general lessons for when we come to that general incompatibility claim or compatibility claim later on. This gentleman here is Philip Goss, uh, father of Edmund Goss, uh, uh, who's a naturalist and scientist. So he, he wrote a book uh, with the title Omphalos, which those of you who know Greek will know stands for naval, naval in the anatomical sense, not in the Lord Nelson sense. And the, uh, the center of uh, the focus of attention of this book is to explain how it is that God created Adam with a navel, given the, the, the way that he created him, the navel being normally a sign of, uh, of being created in a different way. Now, how he's supposed to know, and there, there is some uh, theological dispute as to whether there's any evidence that Adam had a navel, but anyway, uh, it is generally a, a, a problem because obviously God created Adam, I don't know, 23, well, I don't know how old Adam's supposed to be, but certainly of a certain age. And uh, Gauss uses this to diffuse what otherwise would be an objection, a clear objection to the young earth creationist hypothesis, because there's all sorts of evidence that the earth is older than 6,000 years old in the form of fossil, the fossil record, which uh, creationists uh, deal with, but deal with on the assumption that they've got million, millions of years at their disposal in order for the evolution, for the evolution that this partly records to have happened. And you know, uh, amounts of radioactive decay that, are, that radioactive elements have undergone and so on, uh, all sorts of dating techniques lead you to the assumption that it's many, many orders of magnitude older than, than, uh, than 6,000 years. And of course, but Goss was the first person that I know to come up with this hypothesis that you know, analogously to God creating Adam at a certain age and possibly or maybe not with a navel, that God created the rocks as if they were already old with already decayed, uh, um, with, with the radioactive uh, elements already having decayed to a certain extent, with the trees, with the rings in the trees already there indicating a certain age, with the fossils already in the rocks. And you can see this is, a, this is the archetype of a, a non-independently testable hypothesis, and that's, what, that's going to be the key, of course, to the issue of compatibility later on. This is not only, a, when it was formulated, capable of independent test, it's obviously, in essence, in, in, incapable of independent test. All it does is accommodate a problem. If you believe that the Earth was created in 4004 BC, you've got a big problem with all these apparently a very much older elements of the universe. So you postulate that the universe was created with these elements already looking as if, but not really being of a certain age. You just accommodate the problem without making any possibility of any test. Okay, which is to be completely contrasted with Darwinism. Uh, I won't go into that. Okay, so this is the, since sermons have text, so like uh, um, Salvation Army used to say, why should the devil have all the, great, all the good tunes? I don't see why um, I can't have a text just because it's not really a sermon. Uh, so this is a famous quote that's become a bit of a cliche amongst, amongst scientists. Uh, and it sort of stands for a general vague form of compatibilism and then we'll try and get clear about it. So it says we get the ages of rocks, we the scientists get the ages of rock and they get the rock of ages, we work out, out how the heavens go and they work out how to go to heaven. Uh, this last bit was from Galileo in a letter to one of the duchesses that he tried to tap up for money perfectly reasonably. Um, okay, so how does, how's, as I say I'm going to try and uh, be um, 
a bit more precise on what this compatibility might mean and, what, and whether it's a tenable, tenable view. Well, there are certain easy ways to, to achieve compatibility, which surely none of us is going to be happy with, although some people do, uh, do propose them. Uh, so basically, there are two ways to win by retreating. To, to win, that is to, to establish a compatibility thesis. Uh, the first is to strip religion of any, what I would call, real religious content. Um, there's this famous quote by J.S. Haldane, I think it was the father of J.B.S. Haldane, uh, behind the recognised churches there's an unrecognised church to which all may belong. And there's a big temptation, I would have thought, not speaking as one as you can already tell, but for a thinking, for a thinking theist or deist, whatever they might be, to go somewhat more general. Because otherwise you're confronted with this problem that surely ought to worry people, that where you were born and how you were brought up plays a big determining role in what you're likely to believe if you're a religious person at all. I mean, if you were born in Shanghai, Suez, or Sydney, it won't matter what you believe. In, it, it won't have any effect on what you believe about electrons and whether they have an electric charge or not, if you believe anything at all. But whether you believe that Christ was, was, came back from the dead will depend very crucially on where you were brought up. And so this is, I would have thought this clear temptation to just go more general, you know, to go vague and say, well, yeah, whatever the details, maybe all this talk about Jesus or talk about Muhammad is all... Uh, metaphorical largely and, and we should think of we just think of this sort of creation hy hypothesis that, that somehow or other the, the earth is the uh, creation of some uh, loving creator but you can t and I can see the temptation for that and you know I'm not going to give that a bad time necessarily but it, it, you obviously can take that too far I mean I've always liked Woody Allen's uh, remark that he's, he's got this uh, uncle who was a reformed Jew very reformed, he was a Nazi, uh, and I think, uh, I think you can get so, so much of a reformed religious person that you fall off the end, you know, if you can come up with a definition of religion, religious that makes me religious, then you've fallen off the end, and this one, and, uh, there are people who do take it this, that far, I think, so for example, Einstein's often cited as a religious scientist, nobody denies there are religious scientists, but Einstein wasn't one of them. Uh, here's a quote from one of his letters. It is, of course, a lie, what you read about my religious convictions, a, a lie which is being systematically repeated. I do not believe in a personal God, and I've never denied this, but I've expressed it clearly. If something is in me which can be called religious, then it's the unbounded admiration for the structure of the world, so far as our science can reveal it. And similarly, he says, I've never imputed to nature a purpose or a goal or anything that could be understood as anthropomorphic. What I see in nature is a magnificent structure that we can comprehend only very imperfectly, and that must fill a thinking person with a feeling of humility. This is a genuinely religious feeling that has nothing to do with mysticism, that has nothing to do with what I would say is real religion. I mean, if it's about feeling awe on a starlit night somewhere in the middle of nowhere where, there's no, where there are no streetlights, then I do awe better than anybody, I should think, so I certainly count as religious. If it comes to awe, when you think about the complexities of, of quantum field theory, then I do awe at that perfectly well, but I don't think that, uh, and, and or the sheer inexplicability of the whole universe, but that, that, that can be called religious if you like, but it's not religious in any interesting sense. Obviously, if that's what you mean by religion, then there's no issue about compatibility. Indeed, uh, uh, indeed, it, 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 fo it, well, it follows from any sensible understanding of science. If you don't get awed by fundamental physics, then you won't get awed at all. And Einstein sums it up by saying, I'm a deeply religious non-believer. Okay, so in that sense, any sensible atheist is re religious. There has to be some 
supernatural element, whatever that means, and it's not easy to see what it can mean, but anyway, again, I'll let, let, let that go. There's got to be some sort of personal good element to it, otherwise you're not going to get an interesting compatibilist thesis. Uh, another way to win by retreating is to say that, uh, and this is really the, 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 the Stephen Jay Gould view of the non-overlapping magisteria, that they, they, they don't compete because they're about two completely separate things. Science deals with matters of fact, interpreted in a very general sense to include general facts that are described by theories, uh, whereas religion deals with matters of value. So as I say, this was Gold's own version. Uh, he says, uh, the following science tries to document the factual character of the natural world and to develop theories that coordinate and explain those facts. Religion, on the other hand, operates in the equally important but utterly different realm of human purposes, meanings and values, subjects that the factual domain of science might illuminate but can never resolve. Well, again, you know, uh, this is tending to make me a, a, a religious person because I worry about what's valuable uh, and it, it's a matter of some resentment to some of us that religious people on the, very often think that you can't have value, proper ethics and values if you're atheists and certainly views on what's valuable are held by atheists, including me. And if you're going to count them as really religious-based values, then surely you do need to have some fact, allegedly factual uh, descriptive basis for them. It's not just that you, know, that you should love your neighbour as yourself, but that that's, you're doing that because God wants you to do that. That's a, that's a descriptive theory about the world. I think that the uh, theologian and believer, Ian Barber, had it absolutely right here. Um, there's no doubt that religious language does in, in, indeed express and evoke distinctive attitudes. It does encourage self-commitment to a way of life. It acknowledges allegiance to ethical principles and affirms the intention to act in particular ways. But these non-cognitive uses of religion presuppose cognitive beliefs. Religious faith isn't simply a sense of the truth of propositions, but it does require the assumption that certain propositions are true. It would be unreasonable to adopt or recommend a way of life unless one believes that the universe is of such a character that this way of life is appropriate. Uh, here, here is what I say. That seems to me to be absolutely right. And if it's right, then we're back to this question, the issue of how these beliefs that are nest cognitive beliefs, descriptive beliefs, uh, that are needed to underpin religious values, religiously motivated values, how they can be reasonable and how, if at all, they mesh with, with science. So that second way of retreating also doesn't lead to a victory, it seems to me, in the sense of producing an interesting version of the compatibility thesis. So where do we look for an interesting version? Well, you do hear sometimes talk of two realities, a sort of spiritual reality and a material reality, but that just seems to me to elevate a perhaps natural but muddled way of talking into a completely untenable uh, ontological uh, theory, I mean, what, what believers are saying is that there's one reality, and of course there's only one reality, it doesn't make any sense to say there's more than one reality, uh, and that what they're claiming distinctively is that part of that reality is a god and an afterlife, or whatever it might be, just as part of that reality, as scientists will tell you, fallibly and theoretically and so on, is uh, tentatively, uh, is our superstrings or quarks or whatever his, his or her favourite fundamental and equally unobservable entities are. And the issue in both cases is what's the evidence for these alleged denizens of reality? What else could they be if they, if they exist? Uh, what's the evidence that we have for, 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 for their existence? So I think any talk of two realities in this sort of you know, spiritual reality versus materiality is just, it's like saying, it's like Yuri Geller saying that uh, you know, there's, he, he's discovered a new reality, namely the, the reality of the paranormal, but he's not 
really, I mean, it's just a funny way of speaking. The, the claim, of course, it's got no evidence in its favour, is that there's only one reality, but the reality includes psychokinetic powers and all the other things, and the issue is whether there's any genuine scientific evidence for that. Okay, so that's not a way that's going to help it. Uh, help us get an interesting sense of, of compatibilism. It seems to me the only remotely tenable way starts from within science itself. And the crucial uh, starting point is uh, the fact, the logically induced fact, induced is the wrong word in this context, but the logically required fact, that scientific explanation, so-called, is a derivative notion. That is, um, well, let me give you, uh, let me give you, uh, let me illustrate what that means or show what that means. Uh, let's take ourselves back to avoid having to talk about relativity theory and so on, difficult things like that. Let's take ourselves back into the 19th century when people believed that Newton had discovered the truth about the universe. The, 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 it wouldn't make any difference. It would just make more, life more complicated if we were talking contemporary science. So within that, within, in the 19th century, when Newton's theory was, uh, when Newton had been assumed to discover the fundamental truth about the universe, there's a perfectly good answer to that. If you ask the question, why do planets move in the way that they're observed to move, so in rough, roughly elliptical orbits around the, uh, around the sun, uh, in a way that obeys the, other, the others of Kepler's laws, you can give a perfectly good answer, namely Newton's theory. It's because every particle in the universe attracts every other particle in the universe with a force inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them and directly proportional to the product of their masses. And if you work out the mathematics of that, then you you can, uh, you, you will deduce that the planets must move in somewhat perturbed ellipses around, uh, around the sun because of their gravitational interaction with the sun. So you can answer that question, but if you then go on and ask, why does the universe obey Newton's law rather than some other possible law, for example, an inverse cube, why doesn't gravity obey an inverse cube relation rather than an inverse square relation? This is not the question, how do we know it's inverse, inverse square? Because relative to what they assumed then, certain experimental results dictated that it had to be square and that only the, the inverse square would give you the right experimental results. This is the question, why couldn't it have been different? Well, the only answer to that is search me, Gov. Um, that's just a, a fundamental fact about the, about the universe. That's the way the cookie crumbles. It's just a fundamental fact. By the fact that it's, the, that it's our fundamental theory, it follows from that, that there is no explanation of it. If, it weren't, if there were an explanation of it, it wouldn't be fundamental. Kepler's laws are not fundamental because we can explain them on the basis of Newton's theory, but Newton's theory being then fundamental, uh, we can't obviously explain it. So you can't get an explanation of your fundamental theories. Of course, you can attempt to go deeper, and that's what scientists are trying to do all the time, and indeed, it's well known that Newton himself attempted to go deeper. He couldn't believe that the um, he couldn't believe that the uh, that action to distance, which is what gravity is according to his theory, could really be a real element of the of the universe. And he attempted to explain uh, the apparent action to distance via a Cartesian-style plenum, and in which forces of gravity would be essentially pressure gradients within that, within that overall plenum, though he knew perfectly well that Descartes' particular attempt to do that didn't work. But that's what he would have liked to have got, but he never, he never got that theory. He, uh, and eventually, because that attempt to reduce gravity to something, quote, more fundamental failed, people came to the view that there was no need to go any deeper, that actually this was perfectly okay, 
uh, when Coulomb comes to the, do the law of electrostatic attraction and repulsion, he's got action distance in there as well. Because, because no independently testable deeper theory was ever, was ever discovered. And it wouldn't have mattered even if it had. Let's suppose, contrary to fact, that Newton did do what he would like to have done and produced the Cartesian-style explanation of, uh, the, uh, of gravitation. Still, the point would remain, whatever that Cartesian-style account was, it would now be the fundamental. And if you say, well, why is, why is there a plenum of this or this property, which means that, the, that we can now deduce that we'll get a, an inverse square uh, gravitational action, why should the plenum be fixed up in that way? Again, you'd have to say, search me, Gov. That's just the way things are. The point is a logical point that you know, we, we must have fundamental theories. That must, at any stage, there must be a fundamental theory, and we can't explain, by definition, <laughs> fundamental theories. So yet the lesson is that yesterday's brute fact may become today's explained fact, but only on the basis of other, in that case, deeper lying brute facts. So you can't avoid brute facts, and that's what gives the logically inevitable space for the religiously inclined. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, so we've already said it. If we ask it in the 19th century, why does the universe obey Newton's law rather than some other, uh, say the inverse Q, the scientific answer at that stage is search me, gov. But of course, this theology, theolo theologian, the religious person, can give an apparently much better answer. If they're that way inclined, something along the lines of because our loving God willed that it should be so. Or to take a, a, a much more a more recent and more heavily discussed is a, a, a case that Polkinghorne and other religious believers talk about an awful lot, the so-called uh, very fine-tuning of the, of the universe, uh, one aspect of which is that the escape velocity of, uh, of matter, uh, the, the rate at which matter was uh, moving away from the initial singularity from the Big Bang at Planck time, 10 to the minus 35 seconds after the... After the um, after the Big Bang, why does it have the value it did? Well, people would like to have a, a, an explanation for that, but as science stands, again, the answer to that is that's the way the cookie crumbled. That's the, that's the value that it happened to have, that the escape velocity it happened to have at, uh, at Planck time. And it turns out that if it hadn't had that or something very close to it, then galaxies wouldn't have formed. And if galaxies wouldn't have formed, then carbon wouldn't have formed. And if carbon hadn't formed, then people wouldn't have formed. But still, it's a fundamental, unexplained fact of science as it stands of why the escape velocity has the value that it did. But of course, again, uh, the religious person can seem to do much better than search me, Gov. They can say it's because God wanted it to be possible. In this case, it's a much more fuller answer. They were, uh, because God wanted it to be possible for humans to evolve. So he set the Big Bang up in such a way this is going to be the sophisticated version that lets science do all its work, so it's not going to challenge science at all. It's going to, after science has done its work, theology is going to come in and give you an allegedly deeper explanation. And you know, in this case, there's a sort of reason why God might have set it at that value, because if he hadn't set it at that value, uh, then uh, humans wouldn't have, couldn't have evolved. And even, and this is another case that Polkinghorne likes to discuss, we could ask the sort of meta-science question, why has science been as strikingly successful as it has been in revealing that the universe obeys what everybody who understands and belie believes are, in some clear sense, beautiful laws? Well, the scientific answer to that is, yeah, that's amazing, isn't it, that it should do. Well, it's just a brute fact. 
Whereas again, a theologian can apparently give a much, uh, a much uh, more elaborate and satisfying answer. Uh, so and this is actual quote from Polkinghorne and Beale, in a new book which the publishers were very kind to send me, advanced, uncorrected. Page proofs also, I hope I'm not doing anything terribly wrong by quoting from it, but it, it's all anyway in Polkinghorne's earlier work. Uh, the rational transparency and beauty of the universe, they write, are surely too remarkable to, to be treated just as happy accidents. Belief in God can make all this intelligible. Science is understood to be possible because the universe is a creation and we're creatures made in the image of the creator, whatever that means. Uh, hence, says Polkinghorne, theism explains more than a reductionist atheism can ever address because it goes one stage at least further than science can ever do because it can explain what by definition science can't explain, namely its fundamental truths as it currently understands them. And I, just like, I, I can't resist quoting this just because of the chutzpah that it involves here. There's a long tradition in atheist philosophy of saying there's no answer to this question. There's no answer to the question, why did God create the universe? Uh, obeying an inverse square law of gravity, that's what we still believed, uh, when what you mean is there's an answer to this question, namely that God uh, chose it, but I don't like it. Well, doesn't all this mean that I've conceded that indeed science and religion are compatible uh, in exactly the way that I've been talking about. There's no clash with scientific claims on this. There's nothing like the Copernican case or the, or the Darwinian case by definition on this because science clicks in on this view only once science has done all it can. Once you've got the structure of science then along comes religion and gives you explanations that you otherwise wouldn't have had. So there can't be any clash. Uh, in that direct sense. And moreover, not only is religion compatible with science and complementary to it, this complementarity bears fruit in the, f in the form of explanations of things that science can't explain. All sounds very good, and lots of people believe it. But just think about it for a minute. It can't be coherent. At least, it can't be coherent unless we're playing around with a notion of explanation. We're introducing some different notion of explanation for the theological case, because if these were genuine scientific explanations. If religion could supply a scientific explanation of some feature of the world, why, did, why was the world created obeying an inverse square law of gravity rather than something else, then it wouldn't be religion, it would be science. And it would be independently testable because that's what's fundamental to science. And of course these explanations are not scientific at all, but instead and essentially untestable. You just come along, just like Goss came along and produced this completely untestable explanation for why there should be these fossils around, so Polkinghorne now is coming along and saying here's this completely untestable claim that God created the world with this value of the escape velocity at Planck time or whatever it might be. Where do you go? Where do you, how can you test that? Just saying, it's just playing with words and claiming that it's, a, uh, that it's an explanation. So it's very much like the Ghost Dodge. Moreover, it's important to see that science makes a point of outright rejecting OTOs, that is non-independently testable claims. It's not just that they can live in harmony, but the scientific method involves any serious account of theory confirmation involves something like Occam's razor, where if you can't do without it and you can provably do without it, then you do do without it. So nobody believed in, the, again putting ourselves back in the 19th century, in a Cartesian plenum, pressure gradients in which would simulate the action to distance force of gravity, because there'd been lots of attempts to produce an explanation of gravity in those terms and they'd all failed they'd all failed to produce anything that was empirically independently testable. And given that they did, people, science chopped that assumption of an ether, an all-pervading medium, 
that explain why the planets seem to move towards each other off altogether. Similarly, with, uh, when Maxwell produced his theory of electromagnetism in the late 19th century, people couldn't believe that it could just be a, a point of brute fact that at every, every point uh, in space there's a well-defined value of the electric and magnetic field vectors which oscillate in certain ways in response to certain stimuli, that there had to be some explanation for that electromagnetic field in terms of, again, our old friend the ether, some underlying mechanical medium, the contortions of which produced the appearance of electric and magnetic field vectors that were sui generis. People tried, including Maxwell himself, so just like Newton tried to get rid of, uh, if you like, sui generis uh, gravitation, Maxwell, the great inventor of electromagnetic theory, tried to get, a, to get rid of sui generis electromagnetic fields, self-standing primitive electromagnetic field by deducing it from some underlying medium and he and Kelvin in particular put a lot of effort into trying to do that. They failed. Failed in the sense, not in the sense that you couldn't just say, of course, well, there is an underlying field which just an underlying medium which just happens to produce the appearance of these, field, of these electric and magnetic field vectors. That's a trivial e explanation that would be available at no cost because there's no testable consequence to it. They failed in the sense that they couldn't produce a more basic theory that had, uh, that had testable consequences, and so people got used to the idea that it's perfectly reasonable. After all, you know, they're relearning the lesson that, that scientific explanation is derivative. Something's got to be primitive. Might as well just be the electromagnetic field. So we finish up with this, what I call the mature version of Maxwell, which just has the electromagnetic field as, as primitive. So, so it rejects things that, are, that prove to be OTOs. Uh, so I've done all that. So that's why... My grand conclusion, and, but then I'll do a little, don't get too excited that you think I've finished. I'll be a few more minutes after that, uh, coming up with thinking about some possible objections, though I'm sure you have many more. But this is such an old topic that obviously there are millions of possible objections. So the overall conclusion of, my, uh, of this is that, that when you try to pursue a sensible compatibilism, this is as close as it gets. And it's not close enough because it's not compatible. It's true that the incompatibility doesn't reside in a incompatibility with, between specific scientific claims on the one hand and specific religious claims on the other. It's an incompatibility with scientific method. You're doing things in a way that's contraindicated by the scientific method. You're in indulging in non-testable hypotheses just in the mistaken attempt that you can thereby get something that you can count as an explanation in some real objective sense. Well. Well, one of the things that Paul Kinghorn's going to object to it, about that, and other theists as well, and indeed some scientists, sadly, is that they think that some, certain facts about science demand explanation. You can't just take it. You remember that quote from, uh, from uh, Paul Kinghorn saying that certain things couldn't be taken as merely accidental features of the universe. That was somehow not uh, acceptable. Uh, so although religion may not supply scientific, scientific explanations, at least it supplies some explanations. So we can't just take it as an accident that the escape velocity at Planck time of matter was exactly in the very narrow range that it needed to be in order for galaxies to form, that demands an explanation. If the only explanation you can give it is that God created the world so as to, uh, that the, that was the value of uh, the escape velocity at Planck time, then at least it's an explanation, even if it's not a scientific one. And obviously explanations are good. Well, that obviously seems to me to stand to, to rest on an obvious logical blunder. Having said that you can't take a certain thing as a brute fact, namely that in this case that the escape velocity of matter at Planck time was the value that it did, you do take 
as a brute fact the existence of a creator or you define the creator in such a way that it's somehow he, she or it is self-creating, self-exists by essence or some, some other way. In other words, having said that we can't have certain things that are, that are allowed to stand without explanation, you then produce something else in uh, and, uh, that, that has no explanation. Unless you indulge in some then, there's a meta-creator who created this creator and a meta-meta-creator who created the meta-creator and so on down some infinite regress. As Simon Blackburn, who uh, Simon Glendening mentioned earlier, says this is a bit of a, a what Polking on is doing is a even worse version of the old elephants and tortoise problem. Okay, so you ask the person who, uh, who thinks that the earth is fixed at the center of the universe how the earth can stay fixed at the center of the universe. The answer is it's sitting on an elephant. Ah, a clever person says, but what's the elephant sitting on? Well, it's sitting on a tortoise. And then, don't ask, it's tortoises all the way down. Um, but... This, the, the way that Polkinghorne does it is, because there is no all the way down, so that's not a very good explanation either, but the way Polkinghorne does it is, is basically, okay, the, the earth sitting on an ele elephant, what does the elephant stand on? Tortoise. What does a tortoise do? Oh, tortoises just stand. They, they stand by definition. They stand by essence. God exists by definition. Insofar as it has some intuitive appeal, and I don't deny that it has, uh, namely this appeal that it... it, it that the explanation using a creator at least gives us some genuine explanation, even if it's not a scientific explanation. Uh, it re resorts, I think, to primitive ideas about agency. You know, it's known that one of the great breakthroughs of the Enlightenment, uh, one of the great breakthroughs adopted in the scientific method, was the was breaking away from agency accounts of all causation. So primitive people, so-called, used to believe that if you got ill, then it was because somebody wished you. There was some agent, namely your enemy or whatever who wished you to be ill and uh, put some voodoo on you. Uh, and when we have things like you know, viral infection theories of disease and so on, then, then we've, we've superseded all that. But there is something, I think, deep in the human psyche, uh, Dawkins also appeals to this, that, that, that likes to have agency explanations, that is, explanations in terms of some conscious agent. Uh, but the fact about the history of science is that it was in getting over those primitive ideas that science began to flourish. We certainly should, surely shouldn't go back to them and uh, allow those intuitions any weight, given that we've got a perfectly good explanation for where they came from and why they're wrong. And the main thing is, of course, it's easy to think up all sorts of explanations if you don't require testability. Why can't I just think that, uh, if, in answering my question about Newton, that minus two is just a magic number? That's my explanation for why uh, Newton's theory has r to the minus 2 in it, r is the distance between two particles, just a magic number, and maybe there's a cult somewhere that, you know, that that's prays to the number minus 2. Um, it wouldn't, any explanation, once you're not requiring testability, then explanations are easy. Right, now, final point. You may be thinking, at this point, uh, look, Worrell's just telling us all sorts of stuff we knew anyway. Obviously, religion doesn't play by science's rules. It plays by its own rules. Moreover, why it's perfectly entitled to do so. There's nothing special about science. Science is just one language game among many. It's just one paradigm in Kuhn's massively misused phrase among many. Of course, there, there's a compatibility... But the compatibility involves not just differences in claims, but differences in methodological criteria, in evidential criteria for assessing claims. And nothing wrong with that. 
So there's a, there's a scientific way of doing things which insists on evidence in the standard sense, and there's a religious way of doing things which has some perhaps other sense of evidence which, uh, which is quite different. And no problem. Because we've anyway all accepted relativism. We Well, let me suggest that if you are thinking that, then you've been reading too much postmodernism, uh, and that you ought to think again. Uh, first of all, there is something special about science. I mean, people think, even people I, I tend to think of as having good taste, think that Dawkins' famous remark about show me a, show me a, a relativist at 30,000 feet and I'll show you a hypocrite is a cheap shot. I, I, I mean, I've been not, not, nothing like as pithy as that, but I've been using that in lectures on scientific method for years. It may be, uh, you may pretend that science is one language game among many, one paradigm amongst many, but it's not a serious option. Okay? We know that science has been successful. It must have been successful because it's telling us something about the way, the way things are. It's successful in an objectively specifiable way on the basis of, what, again, whatever postmodernists may say, on objective evidence. Whether an atom bomb goes off or not does not be, d depend on your beliefs. Whether a needle points to five on a scale in some meter does not be, depend on your social background. And science has got objective evidence and it has objective results. If we didn't believe in aerodynamics, then we wouldn't be getting on those planes to all those postmodernist conferences all around the world. Uh, or to go and accept the Templeton Prize or whatever. There is something special about science and relativism has got to be unacceptable in, to anybody serious. It's like, you know, sometimes that ghost dodge is, is played in another way and it's sometimes called treating it with the lack of respect it deserves, uh, last Thursday isn't. It's the view that the world was created, because let's bring ourselves in the picture, it's sort of easier to think that maybe the world was created 4004, in 4004 BC, long before we were around, with all the stuff in it. Maybe that's a sort of untestable, but it's not silly. But it could have been created last Thursday, except that then what it would have been created with, with was you, with all your memories of what happened on alleged days before last Thursday. It's logically possible, we know from philosophy that we can't totally refute it, but the way to get through in philosophy is not to be taken up in, not to endlessly gaze at these logical possibilities, but work through that and say, it's silly, it's logically possible, but it's silly. Descartes showed us that it might all be a dream, we might all be uh, manipulated by a, by a malicious demon. Yeah, it might be, but we aren't, and we've got good evidence that we are. <laughs> Relativism is unacceptable on anybody's point of view, and if you, that doesn't seem obvious. Just think what it would mean if it was true. You really would have to be open-minded, and a wonderful phrase of Adolf Grunbaum, so open-minded that your brains fall out, because um, everything's got to be acceptable. Scientology's got its own standards. It's got, you know, that, that we're all descendants from some extraterrestrial. That's, Scientology comes with its own standards. Nazism comes with its own standards. According to Nazism, uh, the Aryans are a super race. That's just a fact about that language game. It's just a fact about the language game of Scientology that, it's, that it believes this, that, and, and the other bit of nonsense, but that's only a judgment that I'm making from the point of view of my language game, which happens to rest on, on scientific principles. Well, this is it's one of those things that's just not serious, it seems to me. It's not seriously available to a, a, a serious uh, thinker, and it would have all these, as I say, very, very strange consequences, you'd have to be, I mean, the only difference between Scientology and Roman Catholicism, say, from this point of view, I think it is the only difference, actually, is that one's been around a long time, 
and has got a lot of adherence, and the other's not been around so long. But you would have to accept that, and I think most uh, thinking religious people would find that very difficult. And it is the only option if you're going to go for this, when you think it through, if you're going to go for this version of the compatibilist claim, with not just difference in claims that, sci that the scientists and the religious people are making, but difference in uh, methods of appraisal. So, is there any interest in compatibilism? No. Thank you very much. <laughs>
every living minute, every time they sniff a rose, they're in contact with God. Well, I could sniff a rose and I'm not in contact with God, but if, if I look at, a, at the plates from the Bhopal um, eclipse ex ex uh, expedition that tested Einstein's uh, theory of relativity uh, against observations of the positions of stars during an, a, a, a total solar eclipse, we, you know, everybody will agree, Chinese peasants, me, believer in God, will all agree that the, this is the distance apart of those two stars on those photographs and this is the distance apart on those two stars on the other photographs. And that's the sort of claim against which Einstein's theory can be tested. So okay. the, 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 it's not a definition, but the criterion of science is genuine testability. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but that's the first and most fundamental um, Thank you. Fact. Okay, oh God, right. Uh, lots of hands coming up now, but we've got one here. Did you have a hand up over there? Okay, we'll start here and then come here. Yes, just a very basic question. Mm -hmm. um, are you concerned about this, that there's no compatibility? Is there fear about uh, movements? Are there any reduction in scientists coming through? Or what are you concerned for the future? What sort of concern? I mean, my concern about, to the future uh, about my son and whether he'll get a decent degree. To, I mean, look at the, the Christian right in America trying to remove. Oh, I'm massively concerned. Massively concerned about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's going back to the that's going back to the topic that I didn't talk about, uh, namely, you know, where people do, as a matter of fact, have specific, uh, uh, not just have but encourage specific clashes between scientific belief and and, uh, and um, religiously motivated belief. And you know, I would have told a, a completely different story, but obviously that's frightening as as anything. I mean, that is the, to teach kids. I mean teach them that there are some people who believe that's just anthropology that uh, in the creation story but to teach them that this is just as good an account that it stands it deserves equal time and stands on an equal evidential footing with the theory of evolution is the denial of everything that that we that, 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 that we got courtesy of the enlightenment is the denial of the whole scientific method and it's frightening as hell um, and as I say intelligent design is just a repackaging of that aimed at uh, the particular uh, American situation where you've got a formal separation between science and religion, so you can't you can't advocate any view on on uh, as something that should be taught in the schools on on explicitly on religious grounds. Do they do they say that it's uh, evidential plausibility, or do they say something else? It's sort of rational plausibility. Well, it's a combination. Uh, it's a, uh, a combination of the, of the two. I mean, but they do they, because they um, haven't learned that simple lesson that accommodation of phenomena within a framework is not the same as predicting a phenomenon that you can then check independently of the framework. They do, you know, use things like the Ghost Dodge as you know, there's nothing. There's no problem with the fossils, quote unquote, for a creationist or for an uh, intelligent designer. Um, because it will give you something similar to the to the Goss explanation. Say we can explain it. What more do you want? Well, what more you want is something that's testable. You know, you want something like Kettlewell, who marks moths and checks how many speckled and melanic varieties get back. Okay, one there and then one here. Mm -hmm. um, we start off with the Barack uh, Obama quote yeah. about the renaissance of religion in the states. Yeah. Um, Tragic, isn't it? Given the um, Amount of rational evidence that you say there is. How would you explain that? Irrationality. 
Uh, I mean, there's lots of explanations. I don't want to be flippant. I mean, people, uh, and you know, some of it, uh, I think Richard, although Richard Dawkins, a lot of the things I, I find problematic, but you know, it's ex some of the explanation for why it is that people find solace in, uh, in religious views uh, uh, seem to me perfectly plausible. I mean, there are people who believe. I find it hard to, 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 to empathize with it. But you know, one of the assumptions that, Paul, that comes through very loud and clear in Polkinghorne the whole time, which I didn't mention because it was irrelevant to the particular claims I was making here, was that nothing matters if it's not eternal. I, mean, I, I don't know, and, you know, and obviously if you did believe that, if you, you, know, you believe that anything that you did in your life would be a complete waste of time because you weren't going to live forever, then you would like somebody to tell you that you are going to, in some sense, live forever. So the appeal of religion is not, you know, is not, is a sort of separate thing. I mean, I, I would um, regard it as sort of aberrant psychology, but you know, that's my that's that's my view. But there's no doubt, doubt that there, there are certain things that make the religious view appealing. And you know, the standard thing that some guy's ripping you off. Very nice to think that he's going to get his or her comeuppance in heaven. Lots of reasons why it might be pleasant to believe in in God, but it's a quite separate question whether there's any evidence to believe in God. The fact that it's pleasant for some people, and, and, and not everybody, but I suppose some people is neither here nor there for the existence question. It's Sorry, I'm piling quick. up. Uh, it's one, mm. two, three, four, so just hang on. Yeah. Yes, um, about Richard Dawkins. Now, I saw his program about Darwinism on television. I don't know if you saw it. Yes, well, there were several. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and in it, he said that, if I remember right, he wasn't believed before, and then when he found Darwin, he became an atheist. Now, to me, I can't see that the believing in Darwin, the, the, the premise believing in Darwin, then proves that there was no God. It doesn't. The premise doesn't prove the conclusion, and I can't understand uh, how Dawkins uh, um, sort of put so much emphasis on this premise when it doesn't prove that. There okay. Is no God. Thank you very much. Uh, Dawkins has some very strange views on explanation, uh, which lead him to that crazy view. I think. Um, I mean, there are very eminent uh, uh, skeptics, uh, like David Hume, long before, uh, before Darwin. He thinks that until you've got some explanation for the wide diversity of, of the flora and fauna that, that exists, there, uh, some alternative explanation to the design hypothesis, then you would inevitably have to go for the design hypothesis. But the design hypothesis is itself non-independently testable. Uh, I mean, I think the sensible thing to say at that point was, well, we've got this amazing, before we had Darwin, we've got this amazing diversity. Search me, God, how it came about. But we're working hard on trying to find a theory that does it. But not to go, which, which Dawkins suggests you, a sensible person would, and there are lots of sensible people who didn't, for a designer hypothesis. Because it's exactly the same drive for explanation at any cost that makes Polkinghorne make his mistake. I, I think that's, one, that's probably the fundamental flaw in in all of, of, of Dawkins' works, in The Blind Watchmaker and, and, as well. Thanks. I'm just wondering if uh, one day there'll be some kind of scientific proof that uh, some people have a particular gene or a particular um, formation of a gene that makes them need to be believers in something. And uh, you're saying yourself that it would be comforting, really, to, to think that if someone who's wronged you is going to get their Maybe you haven't mentioned the word faith at all. Um, I don't know if it's because it doesn't 
it's unscientific. That, I, I didn't mention, I didn't say that explicitly, but that's the. Uh, I mean, that's the. If you need to believe something on faith, then you, by definition, are not applying the scientific method because you're not yeah. looking for evidence, and you're confronted slap on with the relativism problem. Because all right, I've got this faith. Lafayette, Ron Hubbard, had his faith that the universe was created by an alien. Uh, but that's not going to be enough, is it, John? Because if you want... Enough for uh, what? Well, the, the compatibilist thing had to be science compatible with something else. And, you know, the something else in this case is faith. So you can't say, well, it's not science, so that, that's the end of the story, because you've got to have something else to deal with. No, I'm saying, I'm saying it's not science, and, of course, you can create, as I kept saying, you can create compatibilism by changing, by changing the rules as well as the claims, but then you're in this Wittgenstein language game things, and... It, it comes up particularly clearly in the, when people start talking about faith because, you know, I believe this, somebody else believes that, somebody else believes the other, uh, and they're all entitled, presumably, since there's no rational evidence that can, di that can differentiate the different faiths, they're all entitled to, to the faith that they have. I think okay. you know, faith brings a, it, it immediately leads you into relativism. We've got one, two, three. I don't three. believe the gene, but that's yeah. another story. Yeah. Speak up a little bit, please. Sorry, use this marvelous phrase, uh, you know, your own awe of the sheer inexplicability of the universe. Right. Um, and then more prosaically, you then said, search me, God. Um, but what I'm interested in is, you know, how a rationalist and, and someone employing a scientific method deals with what are, you know, those problems. But this is not. This is. Yeah, I, I would want to. I would want. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, it's my, my fault. Uh, I, I, I'd want to differentiate. You know, there's lots of things we don't know, from what I've been talking about, which is that there's bound to be things that you don't know if you ask questions about the fundamental theories, because the fundamental theories will. If you let, allow yourself the question, why is it that this fundamental theory is true, then you cannot get an answer, not at least at that stage in science. And in the later stage of science, if you've got an answer, you'll have an equivalent question that you could raise to which, again, you can't have the answer. So it is inexplicable. I mean, you know, it's, it's somewhere along the line, we've just got to say, this is the way, this is the way it is, and we aren't ever going to get by, assuming we're staying within a rationalist framework where we're looking for evidence, we aren't going to get any explanation for that. And why should we? Why should the universe be explicable to us in, in any serious uh, sense? We're just part of it. We can describe it. We've done an amazing job of describing it. But if you then ask for, you know, why, why is it the way it is? Why is it the way that we describe it to be? You're by definition not going to get an answer. That's something, it's not just something that we don't yet know. It's something that we can't know relative to a given state of, 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 of science. Okay. At the back. Thank you. That's what philosophy is about.
Well, in the sense in which Democritus and Leucippus and the other atomists reconciled it, I don't think it is. It, that's, that's more or less my how to win by, re, how to seem to win by retreating first version. Because you know, if you say, if you identify God with the creation, that is with, with the universe, then of course the universe exists, so God exists. I mean, if, you're, if religion means for you being amazed by the way things are, and that you know, religious feeling is the reaction to the wonders of the way things are, then I don't see it's any more difficult to be scientific now than it was before. In fact, it's easier to be scientific now because we know, I mean, you know, the, the atomists had not the slightest bit of evidence for, for their version of atomism. It was just a sort of metaphysical story. Uh, but we've now got, you know, evidence for the most amazing array of, of theories. And it's, it's awesome to think how much we do know. Of course, there's lots we don't know, but it's awesome to think that we do. Okay. And the awe is increasing all the time. But I don't count that as being religious. Speak up a little bit, please. very good until your last bit, because we do have very good evidence that there was a beginning, namely the Big Bang. Uh, I mean, I think it's certainly possible, and of the, of the sort of major religions, I think Buddhism, as far as I can tell, is the, comes closest to it, to have a view that would not be subject to any of the uh, counter-arguments that I've been talk talking about here, because it doesn't attempt to say, to explain the way the world is in terms of some new supernatural agency. Um, but whether, you know, the whole notion, of, I'd have to read more about Buddhism to know whether, whether there's any, but it, it, it does seem to me, what I'm really saying is, you know, Judaism, uh, Islam, Christianity, Scientology, but that's another story, but there's, there's something that gives you some sort of attempted explanation of a non-natural kind. Maybe not Scientology, given that the terrestrials were supposed to come from some other part of the universe. Uh, but the, the, and I'm, I, I'd have to think through more carefully what the. Uh, but as I say, the, the danger always would be that you define religion in such a weak sense that there's no clash with science because it's not really religious in the way that most people would think of being really religious. Good. Okay. Thanks. Uh, one here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that you already answered the question because it's very similar to the previous one. Uh huh. amazing I'm going back to my Papirian roots you know I think I got way beyond Popper but I talked all this about testability and now I'm going to say the same thing I said earlier about definitions 
definition is not going to get you very far. I think you, know, you can always ask for a definition of the terms in which you give your first definition. Um, so you know, it, it's easier to ca characterize science than to give a definition of it. I think and it's easier to characterize religion. Now, there are lots of things that have been called religion, and I don't mind really where you draw, where you draw the line. But it seems to me, in order, if there's a, an interesting question about whether science and religion are compatible, it can't be, for example, the type of religion that I've just mentioned again now in respect of Einstein, you know, just awe at the amazing universe, or thinking, you know, feeling that sort of w really weird feeling when you realize that you know, there are fundamental truths about the universe that you're never going to explain. And obviously it gets easier to see the incompatibility the further you go to the right or left, whichever it should be, right, I should think. And Catholicism would be a, a, a right-wing view where there are very definite, there appear at least on the surface to be very definite claims that clash with science. Not clear how you can, how you can reconcile a literal belief in transubstantiation with science, for example. Um, okay, uh, one on the back. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, again, a bit of a conventional uh, issue uh, where you claim that happens. I suppose whenever you start to get, uh, whenever you start to get molecules replicating uh, more or less faithfully uh, in such, but in a way that also involves possibility of mistranscription or whatever, which then can get selected out. I mean, I've never been too happy with talk about you know, evolution of molecules and so on. Uh, but I don't see that's really a problem, even if you just started... The, uh, the, the three views when you've got something that's recognisably a, a, an organism, I don't see that would be a big problem. Okay. I, I don't think it needs to be a complete theory. I was wondering what um, personally you thought about the problems of, of trying to reconcile, um, other than the, the, the ignorance issue, trying to reconcile science and religion, sort of the creationism thing You mean how I would try and confront that problem? No, well, why is it such a problem? Why is it such a problem for me? Well, because, I mean, it would be a problem if I lived in the, in the northeast of England or in the United States and I was sending my kids to a school where they were being taught uh, total nonsense about creationism being a hypothesis that deserves equal respect with the, with the Darwinian theory. Uh, and I would want to try and do something about that. Now, I, I don't quite know what you're asking me, whether how I think that arises or what, what, are the what I would do. What are the implications of it? Implications. Implications. Well, the implications would be that you're depriving these kids of, or you're, you're doing something that is very likely to lead to them being deprived of being able to judge theories in the light of evidence. And that's a terribly important thing to be able to do. <coughs> you know, not, not just in science, but all, you know, if you're on a jury or whatever, you know, you, you, that's what you're doing all the time. I think the scientific method is just the rational method of, you know, you, you, you formulate a, a theory as to how things might be, e even very you know, 
baby theories and then you try and see whether, what the evidence for them is. You, know, you formulate the theory this person's guilty and you try and assess the evidence if you're on a jury. And it's very important to be able, not just from a highfalutin scientific standpoint, but from the standpoint of being a, a, an ordinary citizen, to have a, a sensible view of how evidence impacts on theory. And if you're being told an, an absolute nonsense about how theory, how evidence impacts on theory, namely that it's just as good an explanation of the fossil record that, that, that Goss gives to the one that the, create, that the evolutionists give, then it's not very likely that you're going to have a sensible view of, 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 of evidence in general, or the rational method in general. Okay. Yep. Uh, a two-part question, very yes. quickly. Yeah? Were you uh, an atheistic Christian when you were seeing all things brighten before, or did it come later? That's the first part. The I, was, part I was keeping my mum happy, that's oh. what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't think you can say that. I mean, that's one of the, funnily enough, that's one of the uh, uh, proposed uh, slogans for the second wave of the atheist bus, you know, there's no such thing as a Protestant stroke Catholic stroke Jewish child. Um, and I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, it, it was a, when, when I, it was pre-universal TV anyway, I mean, there were, there were two people in our street who we regarded as very posh who had televisions. Uh, but, you know, there was a time when a lot of social life was based on the, in my case, on the chapel, and my my parent, my, well, not my father, but my mother was certainly strongly in that tradition, and her family was as well. And I was taken to school, to Sunday school, and to church from a very early age, and it was expected that I would you know, carry on doing that. And I, I, I think at the time I first started really to think what I really believed, then I decided already at that stage. I don't think I ever believed the stuff I was doing, but I did get first-class honours in several scripture tests <laughs> uh, before that time. I don't know, I think we've got so many questions, if you don't mind. It was a good we, question, though. Anyway, yeah, go. that was a good question. Can we, <laughs> can we go very quickly? Right, okay. very quick. It's just to do with what kids learn in school. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you would agree it would be a good idea if they learn philosophy, logic, rational thought in school. Not philosophy, critical thinking, certainly. Critical thinking, but to learn about I don't think that everybody who's, who's, uh, who's uh, religious believes that, but there are people who are religious who do believe it, and it's appalling, yeah, very frightening. Can you be an influencer, though, to try and influence what uh, I do. Uh, Here he is. I, I'm trying, yeah, I'm doing it, yeah. This is it, yeah. Are you saying that scientific testing and absolute? Ah, now that's a very good question that leads to a, a, another objection that I could have gone into. I mean, um, uh, basically, you know, can you rationally defend the basic principles of rationality? Very good question. Can we go on to the next one? <laughs> the answer's no, but I don't care. It's like saying, I mean, there's a, there's a, it, there's a sort of two-quoque argument. Look, you, you, you're, you're, you have faith as well, because you have... You believe in logic, and Lewis Carroll, aside from writing Alice in Wonderland, had a wonderful was a philosopher and mathematician, and he wrote this wonderful article showing that you couldn't justify even the basic principles of logic, like modus ponens, if p then q and p entails q, without presupposing logic. So there's no nonsense. But that doesn't that doesn't hurt me one bit. I know that modus ponens. It's not like I know my redeemer liveth. I know that modus ponens is true. And I don't need any justification for that. Those are nonsense. You're bringing 
No, 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 no. I'm not using Lewis. This is this is Lewis Carroll in his non non nonsense moments. This is when he's being a philosopher. No, I do. I'm I'm agreeing with you. I think it's a very good question. You do have to take a little bit on faith in order to believe in reason, because you have to believe you have to believe in. In the principles of reasoning, uh, uh, again. You know, Do you know what? I, we, I thought we had time for one last question, but actually that was such a good thing to finish on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I think we are going to stop it there. It's 8 o'clock, and I'd like us now to thank John Morrill for his <laughs>